We are in, starting this morning, week three of a six-week series working through the epistle of 1 Peter. So in week one, we covered verses one and two, uh, Peter's introduction and some context for the letter. And then last week, we uh, covered verse, or chapter one, verses three through 12. And we'll do a quick recap of that in just a second. And this morning, we're going to pick up in verse 13 of chapter one and work our way all the way through chapter two, verse 10. All right, so let me pray for us, and then we'll do some recap of last week, and we'll pick up in verse 13. Heavenly Father, we come before you. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the privilege of gathering together this morning as your people to worship you. Lord, we pray your blessing on this time together. We pray that you would be our teacher. And um, Lord, we thank you for the marvelous inheritance that you've given us. We pray that you'd help us to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, we've talked about uh, a handful of concepts so far. Uh, one is this idea of exile, which is a theme that uh, Peter refers to uh, frequently throughout the letter. Um, this idea that we are citizens of heaven, that we're chosen by God for salvation, and we're uh, in this state of exile or wandering here as we wait for the fullness of our salvation to be revealed. Um, and we are looking forward to this great inheritance Uh, that Peter told us last week is imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading, it cannot be lost, it's kept for us, and we are kept for it. And during this time of exile, while we're waiting for this inheritance, uh, we are grieved by trials, right? We suffer uh, for the glory of God. And Peter gave us some truths, some helpful um, concepts as we think about suffering, Um, things like the the idea that we are, we should be focused on the future, and on our, we have kind of a future orientation rather than a present orientation. Um, and so this great inheritance that we have that we're looking forward to enables us to rejoice even in present suffering. And Peter also reminded us that the suffering is temporary, that it is just a little while, as he said, but our hope in Christ is eternal and our joy is everlasting. And then finally, he told us that it is actually necessary for us, right, that God ordains trials for our good and for our sanctification. And sanctification is one of God's purposes. Uh, The exposing of idolatry, the mortification of sin, uh, increases our reliance on God. And we talked about how suffering actually kind of counterintuitively fuels our worship because we see his deliverance of us through our own personal hardships uh, in a personal and intimate way again and again and again over the course of our lives. Um, And then we also talked about how suffering is a check on sin in some ways. Um, We looked at Paul's thorn um, and how he said that, you know, God had ordained this suffering as a check on his pride. And the trajectory of the Christian life, uh, it follows Christ from suffering to glory. And we see that kind of theme in the book of 1 Peter as well, or pattern in the book of 1 Peter as well. So with all of that in mind, Peter then says in verse 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, 
not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. All right, so I'm going to stop there, and we'll tackle this first section. All right, so we get into verse 13, and we have a therefore, right? So Peter is is saying, because of everything that's come before, this is what I'm going to tell you. And what is everything that's come before? We kind of just talked through it in the recap, but these ideas that we are elect exiles, uh, we've been born again, we've been granted this inheritance, we're being transformed into Christ-likeness, we are uh, rejoicing in this salvation, even in suffering. Um, And in verses 10 to 12, he had also talked about uh, this great privilege that we have as believers, that we know the full plan of salvation, uh, which was hidden uh, to the Old Testament prophets. Um, he described it as even information the angels longed to see. Every, everyone was wondering, how is God going to accomplish redemption? And we know we have access to this truth. And so in light of all these blessings that God has given us, Peter tells us that we are to set our hope fully on the grace that we brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the first imperative in the letter. Um, It's uh, significant throughout Scripture. We see this theme that the indicative, what God has done, always precedes the imperative, which is what we are to do as a result of of that. And we see that um, all throughout Scripture. um, You think of the Ten Commandments, and God precedes the Ten Commandments by saying, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, right? So he's saying, this is what I've done for you, right? And then this is the response to grace, right, is that we obey those commands. Um, And so we have the same pattern here. In in light of all that God has done for us, this is what Peter is telling us to do. And so God's commands, then, in light of that indicative and then imperative pattern, uh, they're really, they're an appropriate response to grace, right? It's not a crushing burden. It's not demanding. It's an appropriate response, So what does this phrase mean when Peter says that our hope should be set fully on the grace that we brought to us? Um, He's saying that our hope should be on the fullness of our salvation that we'll experience when Christ returns, right? So we kind of hinted at this a little bit, but this is that future-oriented perspective that we need uh, to enable us to rejoice despite adversity. It also means that we should be... um, one, we should be whole, we should be unmixed, we're not scattered, right? Our hope is fully in one place. And this is one of the things that I think the ceremonial law actually pictures really well, where these, there's these kind of strange prohibitions, like uh, the prohibition on wearing clothing of multiple types of fabric. And we read that and we go, what on earth is going on here? Why does that matter at all? Um, but it's a reflection of God's character in the sense that God is pure, he's whole, he's one, he's without composition, right? And so the ceremonial law pictures that. Um, And I think that's what Peter is getting at here, too, that God's people are to be like God in that respect. We are to be without uh, composition in that sense. We're not to be diluted. We're not to be scattered, but fully dedicated to him alone. And Harrell, Bill Harrell and his, um, sorry, I'm missing my slides here. Uh, He had a, a quote in his commentary, Let's Study First Peter, Um, It says, verses 13 to 16 is a call to nothing less than complete conformity to the character character of God. Their minds, their appetites, their aspirations, 
their actions are all to be brought captive to Christ. So what does it look like to live this way? Um, A couple points here. Uh, One, I think first and foremost, is that we trust Christ alone for salvation, right? We're not saying, yeah, I trust Christ, and then also attempting to earn brownie points with God by some sort of works righteousness, right? We don't begin by faith and then continue on with some practical theology of works. It means also that we must worship God alone, right, and not idols. We tend to make idols for ourselves, uh, even of good things that God gives us, right? So our hope cannot be in uh, career success or the perfect family, you know, achieving some version of the American dream, a comfortable retirement, whatever it is. Uh, We need to worship God alone, Um, And our satisfaction needs to be in him alone, right? He is the giver of all good gifts. And so we enjoy uh, the gifts that he's given us, but our our hope and our delight needs to be ultimately in God. Um, And I think it also, going back to that future perspective, it means that our hope is not really in this life. It's really in the life to come. We're not expecting our best life now. We're not looking for, you know, political saviors or, or anything like that. Uh, but we're really looking, looking forward to the life to come when all things will be made new. And so how do we do that? How do we get to this place where we're doing all these things? Uh, Peter gives us two, uh, two tips, so to speak, here. He says, um, actually, these are kind of precursors to his command. He says, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. Um, so it's significant when you look at these two that they both mention the mind, okay? So the mind is really the, the battleground of the Christian life, right? It's in the mind and the heart that we first sin, and then that sin manifests itself in subsequent words and actions. The mind is this battleground of truth and lies and deceit. So we need to be thinking according to the truth. Paul says this as well, uh, Romans 12, 2. I'm sure many of you are familiar with this, right? Do not can be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, right? So again, this, the mind is this battleground here where we need, to be, we need transformation. And he says again in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 6, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Uh, so do you notice here, again, he's talking about the mind. He's talking about, he says, destroy arguments, every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, taking every thought captive to Christ. So the mind is crucial. Um, and when Peter says, uh, prepare for action, this first clause, uh, it's uh, apparently the literal words mean gird up the loins of your mind. So Edmund Clowney um, pointed out that this is, this is the image of, of kind of wearing a long robe, and then you, you kind of gird it up, you pick it up, and you tuck it into your belt, and that prepares you to take action of some sort, to travel, uh, to run, to work. Um, and so what this means is that we're called to action, to a watchful expectancy as we hope in Christ and look to his return. Right? This is not a, a passive waiting, it's not a passive hope, so to speak, but an active one. Um, Matthew Henry um, pointed out that uh, this girding up actually includes uh, disengaging from all that would hinder to you. It actually includes stripping down, which is kind of an interesting uh, thought there, kind of an interesting parallel. 
Um, and we see that in Hebrews 12, 1. It says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So it's talking about putting off sin, setting aside sin. So this preparing for action means, in some sense, stripping down, getting rid of the sin that prevents us uh, from hoping fully in Christ. You prepare for action, and then Peter tells us that we need to be sober-minded. Uh, Matthew Henry, again, uh, he listed three different things that uh, go into being sober-minded. I thought these were helpful. Uh, one, he says, we need to be vigilant against spiritual dangers. We have an enemy. Um, he says we also need to be temperate in our behavior, not given to excess. Um, and thirdly, that we need to be humble in our judgment of ourselves. And 1 Thessalonians uh, 5, 6 to 11, 1 Thessalonians also talks about being sober-minded, and it says this, So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. All right, so Paul is saying the same thing here, that Christians are not to be characterized by living in this kind of drunken stupor that he describes here, but by faithful living. Right? It kind of gives a sense that uh, drunkenness is the refuge of those who have no hope, right? Those who are in despair numb themselves to reality. But the Christian has this glorious future and a present call to action. And Christ told some parables to this end as well, I think, this idea of being sober-minded. Um, in Matthew 25, he talks about the ten virgins, right? And you have some of them who are sober-minded, who are watchful, who are expectant, and they're trimming their lamps, and so they're ready when the bridegroom comes. And the other ones are not, right? And so they're not ready, um, and similarly, uh, we have the parable of the, the uh, steward in Luke, uh, Luke 12, right? Who, the master's away, but he's going to return at some point. And we have this steward who's supposed to uh, be faithful, right, in caring for his master's goods while he's gone. So Bill Harrell, again, uh, pointed out that in the midst of uh, painful or trying circumstances that we find ourselves in, it can be tempting to try and uh, uh, fall or to kind of uh, blunt the edge of our, of our afflictions um, through uh, intoxicating ourselves in some sense. Um, so this can take the form of alcohol or drugs, right, but it can really be any kind of self-indulgence. Um, we could be, um, you know, we could, we could uh, use different things, right? We could use excessive entertainment, for example, uh, or really any kind of self-indulgence um, to kind of take the edge off. It's kind of an escapism, really, in some sense. Um, and this really does characterize the behavior of the world, if we think about it. Um, this kind of behavior is, is ubiquitous. Uh, the world's mantra now, it seems, is that it's bad to resist any kind of desire. That if you're restraining any desire you have, that that is wrong somehow. Uh, but we are called to resist living in self-indulgence and instead to live for the coming kingdom. And it's by fixing our minds on the truth of the gospel uh, that we can put trials in their proper perspective and even rejoice in the midst of suffering. So self-indulgence really offers just a brief escape. It's kind of a, a temporary relief 
you know, from the pain of our circumstances. But hope set on Christ gives strength and joy during prolonged hardship. So what are some practical ways that we can prepare our minds for action, be sober-minded, set our hope fully on Christ? And I would say the practical ways are the spiritual disciplines, right? It's attending worship. It's being regular and faithful in that. Uh, We should be in the Word on a regular basis, reading Scripture and meditating on it. Uh, Prayer, we should be praying to the Lord uh, frequently. Uh, Fellowship with the church, right? Being honest about our struggles with one another, encouraging one another. You know, we're not meant to live the Christian life alone. Fathers, we should be doing family worship. This is one way that we exercise spiritual leadership uh, in our homes uh, for our wives and children. Um, So the point here is that we need to be filling our minds with the scriptural truths of who God is and what he's done for us, and that is how we fight against the lies of the devil. I really like Acts 2.42, this description of the very early church right in Jerusalem, um, and it says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. There's just a couple things. It's fairly simple, right? It doesn't seem like much, but this is what we've got in the arsenal, right? These are the tools. These are the weapons, the means that God has given us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so this is what we should be about and be dedicated to. So moving on to verse 14, uh, we have this progression, we, this shift from verse 13 to, to verse 14. Uh, verse 13 is focused on the mind. It's all about the mind. And then in verse 14, we kind of shift more to, to actions. Okay, so we have this sequence or this progression that I think underlines a truth that action follows belief, right? That our sin is ultimately grounded in a lack of faith about God, of God's claims about himself and his promises to us. So Peter comes in verse 14 um, and describes us as obedient children. This relates to our status uh, um, as children of God. So who we are defines what we do, not vice versa, right? We sin because we are sinners. And so conversely, since we are the children of God, we should be characterized by obedience. We should act in the way that he does. So Peter is kind of reminding them here of the transformation that they've undergone. They've been bought with a price. They've been transferred into the kingdom of the beloved son. And so they are to cease the former ways and walk in God's ways. And formerly, all right, what were they characterized by? They were characterized by the passions, right? Passions of your former ignorance. Um, the word passions here, I think, gives the sense of being ruled by your appetites, being ruled by your desires. Uh, sin is bondage. It is not freedom. Uh, but here, Peter is saying, you've been uh, called out of that, and so you are children of obedience. Um, and he quotes Leviticus 11.44 here, uh, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We need to hate our sin and strive against it. And Peter gives us uh, several motivations for doing so, starting in verse 17. Um, he says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. All right, so he's kind of calling out God as judge here as a motivation for holy living. Um, he's saying, if you claim to know God, if you pray to him as father, uh, then you should be careful how you live because God is going to judge everyone according to their deeds. Everyone is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, which is a sobering thought. Now, we know that um, you know, when we stand before Christ, we're not going to be judged based on our own merit, but based on Christ's merit, right? So that's a very, very uh, good and encouraging thought, right? We don't have to fear what's going to—we don't have to fear the outcome of the judgment. Um, but it's 
a helpful reminder that, as Peter says in Second Peter, we need to be diligent to make our calling and election sure, right? The true faith um, is evidenced by fruit. Um, I don't think Peter, when he says, if you call on him as father, I don't think he's suggesting that uh, the churches here don't call on God as father, but I think he's highlighting that it's appropriate for uh, the Christian to uh, respect God as judge, to reverence him as judge, while also call, intimately calling him father, right? That he's both things, and that the realities of God as father and God as judge and God as redeemer are all complementary motivations for holy living, that they're not um, inconsistent with one another. And so I think he, he says that kind of explicitly in the next, uh, section, or next clause here when he says, conduct yourselves with fear, knowing that you were ransomed, right? So we fear God because we are ransomed. We owe him great reverence because of our salvation. Um, Psalm 130 describes this well, this idea that uh, we fear God because he forgives, because there is a hope of reconciliation. It says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So if there's no, if there's no chance of salvation, then it's kind of like, don't, like, nothing matters, right? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But that's not the case, right? And so uh, there is kind of a healthy fear that it's talking about here. Um, Proverbs describes the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom in multiple places. And Hosea as well kind of ties together the fear of the Lord and his goodness, interestingly. It says in Hosea 3, 5, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. And so there's a sense in which not all fear is bad, that there is actually a, a healthy fear, a good kind of fear. Um, not like wanting to avoid hell is a good fear, right? That's a, that's a good fear to have. That helps you know, drive us to Christ, and that's a good thing. Um, the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, chapter 14, uh, paragraph 2 on saving faith, um, highlights this as well. It says, by this faith, a Christian believeth to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word for the authority of God himself speaking therein and acteth differently upon that which each particular passage containeth, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, which I highlighted, and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. So this trembling at the threatenings is actually part of saving faith. Um, only those who have no knowledge of God have no fear of him. So God also is the only one, the only thing that we actually should fear. Um, Matthew ten twenty eight, Christ says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. I think a lot of times we get this backwards, at least I know I do, where I tend not to fear God when I should, and I tend to fear all these other things. Um, and that's totally backwards, right? I would be much better off if I just feared God and then didn't fear anything else. Isaiah 8, uh, 7 to 13 is a really striking passage. This is just the Lord in this passage, I'm going to summarize it, is uh, rebuking the people because they are afraid of the Assyrian invasion. So the Assyrians are, are threatening to invade Israel. Um, and that is a far greater threat than anything I'm likely to face in my life. That's an existential threat. That seems like a pretty rational thing to be afraid of. Um, and yet God is telling him that they're not to fear that. They, they are to fear him alone. 
So there, we should have this very high reverence for God and fear for him, um, not fear for circumstances. And this means that we should have such a regard for God that we're more bothered by the thought of sinning against him than we are afraid of any suffering that we might experience. And the great benefit of a proper fear of God is that it actually sets us free from other fears. It sets us free from all the worries and doubts uh, that tend to cloud our thinking and prevent us from rejoicing in the gospel. So Julie's question is, what does it mean by threatenings? What is it talking about in the Westminster Confession of Faith? Trembling at the threatenings, um, that means um, uh, like being afraid of the warnings that God gives, saying that judgment is coming, right? There is a day of judgment when God's wrath, uh, when he's going to judge everyone who's not found outside of Christ, right? And his uh, wrath against sin will be on them. And so that's what it's talking about when it says threatenings. It's saying this is a real event. The day is coming, um, and that is a warning to us. And so we should take that. We should heed it. We should take it seriously. Any other questions at this point before I move on? All right. All right, so in verse 18, uh, moving on a little bit, Peter says, or actually continuing on, so we, we talked about um, uh, conducting yourselves with fear, and then we have this word ransomed in verse 18. Ransomed. Uh, this is a, a, a word that refers to the Old Testament practice of buying back or redeeming a relative who had sold himself into a slave or redeeming property of some sort. Um, we have multiple examples of this in the Old Testament. Uh, we think of uh, Ruth and Boaz, right? Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. He buys back the property of Naomi and Elimelech. Um, Hosea and Gomer, again, uh, Hosea buys Gomer back. He literally purchase her, purchase her, purchases her you know, from the slave block. Um, and so what Peter is saying here is that God has exercised his right of redemption to redeem his people to buy us back because of his faithfulness to us, because of his steadfast love. Psalm 32, 34, 22, the Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So we have this idea of a transaction here with this word redeemed, ransomed. But rather than a transaction of currency, as was described in the law, prescribed in the law, um, Peter says that it's a transaction paid in blood, that we've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, not with metal currency. So this was an incredibly costly transaction that God paid to redeem us. It was a, a cost that we could never pay for ourselves. And Peter here tells us that we're ransomed, but he also says we're ransomed from something. Um, so did you note that? He says we are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers. And I love the way he describes this because Peter here sets up this fantastic contrast in inheritances, right? We have this inheritance that we talked about in the first few verses of chapter one. And then he's saying there's this other inheritance uh, inherited from our forefathers. So we have this inheritance of futility from our earthly fathers that cannot merit us favor from, with God, right? It's literally a worthless inheritance, um, and you can trace it back to Adam, right? We are all dead in sin in Adam, and that manifests itself in all manner of idolatry and works righteousness. Um, and you think about all these you know, pagan world religions, they're all based on one or both of those, I think. Um, and so we have this futility, this inheritance of futility, but we have been adopted by God. We've been granted this imperishable inheritance that is undefiled and unfading and guarded for us. 
And this inheritance is guaranteed by the work of Christ. It's one full of purpose and meaning and life, unlike the inheritance of death that we have in Adam. And it's interesting to think, think too, about the idea of inheritance. What do you do to receive an inheritance? Do you do anything? You're just born, right? You're just born into the family. And that's why, you know, Peter's used this term born again multiple times, and it's such a rich descriptor of the child of God, right? That we, are, we, are, we have been born again, born a second time, born into God's family. And so all these benefits and blessings are true of us. All right, let's move on to verses 20 and 21. Peter says, He, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So I think what Peter is saying here is that uh, when he says he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, he's describing that God, that Christ's coming was the goal of God's eternal plan. The, sal- the plan of salvation is not an afterthought. It was not plan B, but it was God's eternal will. And he said it's made manifest in the last times. Um, this is similar to what he said in verses 10 to 12, this idea that the gospel was not fully revealed until the incarnation. And so it's described as a, this mystery throughout the New Testament. Um, but note also that it is uh, for our sake, right? So God has worked all things for his glory, for the good of the church, and his eternal purpose is to redeem his people. All right, and let's move on to verse, verse 21, 22. And we're going to read through 2, 3. Let me pause for another second. I'm, I have not been pausing much to uh, take questions. So if anyone has a question. All right, 122. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. All right, so we have this phrase in 122, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Um, and that, you know, if you, when you read it like this, it almost sounds like justification by works. It almost sounds like he's saying that they have purified their souls by their obedience to the truth. Um, but that's not what he's saying. He's saying that their obedience to the truth is this, uh, this original obedience of faith we talked about in week one. Um, it's submission to the claims of gospel and in submitting to the claims of the gospel, they have been purified. They have been definitively sanctified. They've been washed, um, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians um, 6, 9 to 11. And so therefore, because they have been washed, they are to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. This parallels the second great commandment, to, you know, to love your neighbor as yourself. Um, it's this fruit of genuine faith. And Peter emphasizes the motives of our love with his description of what this is to look like, right? He gives us these three terms, um, sincere brotherly love, that should be earnest, it should come from a pure heart. So he's saying that, uh, you know, a sincere love is not 
forced, it's not mechanical or dutiful. Uh, we should have actual warmth and compassion for one another. Um, it should be earnest, it should be deep. It's not sparing or minimal, but it's generous, it's from the heart. And it's pure, it doesn't spring from selfish or ulterior motives, but from a true and genuine care and concern for one another. I'm going to quote Bill Harrell again. Uh, he says, we, sh- are, we are, as it were, to treasure our brethren in our hearts. We are not to love them with sincerity only when we are face to face with them. Rather, we are to keep our brethren in our hearts and prayers perpetually. This would involve, for example, reflecting upon the precious members of the church, whether known directly or by report, thinking kindly, compassionately, and prayerfully of them regularly. It should be obvious from this that we are instructed to guard our hearts from growing cold or disinterested towards them, to guard our minds from thinking hard or bitter thoughts towards them about them, and to guard our tongues from speaking destructively to or of them. So that's a convicting quote, isn't it? Uh, but one of the things that he said in there that I think probably slips under the radar some is the idea of how important it is to be regularly praying for our brethren. Um, this is a real way that we invest in one another. And I, I think we probably don't think about that enough. We think of investing as physical service more than praying, but praying is a real investment, and it does serve to increase our love for one another. Um, and incidentally, you know, if there, whenever there's conflict between members of the church, if you have conflict with someone, it's easy to kind of have hard thoughts about them for a little while afterwards, uh, but praying is a great way to get over those thoughts. It's very hard to... Um, be th- to think ill of someone or to think hard thoughts about them if you're praying for their welfare day after day after day. All right, so we have this uh, sincere, this deep, this earnest love for one another, um, and how, how do we exercise this kind of love for one another? You can't just manufacture it, right? It, you can't just will yourself to love one another earnestly with compassion. Um, but Peter, again, uses this term born again in verse 23. And he talks about being born of not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Um, the idea here is that we, are, we have been regenerated to newness of life through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so it is this power of the Spirit that's transforming our hearts and desires that is enabling us to love this way. And he says that this word, this, this seed that's imperishable, is the living and abiding word of God. Right, so it endures forever. It's a means of spiritual life for us forever, not just a one-time act of regeneration. Um, and so I think that's kind of what Peter is getting at or why he quotes Isaiah 40 here when he says, all flesh is like grass, right? The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Uh, this is supporting Peter's claim that uh, being born again through the word is everlasting, that it is eternal, right? That our new status as sons is imperishable. The word will not fail someday, therefore our redemption will not fail. Right? The, those born of the perishable seed, born in Adam, will wither and fade like the grass, but the new creation, born of the imperishable and abiding word, will live forever. So the big idea from this part of chapter one is be who you are. I think that's, a, that's probably a good way to sum it up. Be who you are. Right? That you have been born again, you've been born of imperishable seed, so you should be obedient to the truth and loving one another earnestly. Right? This, you know, we've talked about motives here. Love is an action word, too. I think that's worth pointing out, right? that it's, a, it's doing. It does things. It serves one another. Uh, we demonstrate our love by serving one another. 
So we have uh, this earnest love that Peter is calling us to. And then there's probably, it's kind of an unfortunate chapter division because I think two verses one to three go directly with the point above, but there probably wasn't any great place to break up uh, the thought here. Um, So Peter goes on and he talks about more fruit of being born again. So one is loving one another. Um, And then he says in chapter two, verse one, that we also should be putting off the former ways of our sin. He says, put away malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. This is not a comprehensive list of all sins, but each of these, when you look at it, they're each antithetical to loving one another, right? So this goes directly with the point above. You cannot be characterized by these behaviors and also be loving the brethren. These are incompatible with brotherly love. So we need to be putting these to death. And then Peter gives us another um, exhortation that we need to long for the pure spiritual milk. All right, what is the pure spiritual milk? This is the word, right? Peter's talking about the word. Uh, This is sustenance for the soul. Um, Psalm 1, uh, the blessed man delights in the law of the Lord. And Peter actually... (laughs) He goes a little bit farther, I think, than Psalm 1 uh, in his description of how we are to long for it, uh, because he says that we are to long for it like newborn infants. All right, so most of you, I think, uh, have had kids, so you probably have a pretty good sense of what Peter's talking about here, right? Milk for the newborn infant isn't a take-it-or-leave-it fringe benefit, right? They, they howl for it with desperation, like as if their lives depended on it, which they kind of do, I guess. You know, it's, uh, that's the main thing for them, right? And so, you know, you have a newborn that wakes up from a nap and they start to make a little noise. You've got like 30 seconds before it's, you know, full-on cries of desperation uh, for milk. And Peter is saying that this is how we should approach the word, that we should have this same kind of desperation for the word that a newborn infant has for mother's milk. That we should not view the word as a chore. We shouldn't view preaching as something that's kind of forced on us that we just endure and then we get on with the rest of our day. We should delight in the preaching of the word. We should delight in our own personal study of it. Uh, we should be addicted to it. Like you just can't get enough of it. Peter says that we should long for it um, because uh, by it you may grow up into salvation. The word is how we grow, right? We actually cannot grow without it. Just as the, the infant grows through imbibing uh, his mother's milk, the believer grows through ingestion of the word. Um, nature abhors a vacuum. A vacuum. Um, so if you're fighting against sin, you can't just stop sinning, right? You can't just say, okay, I'm just not going to sin today. Uh, it doesn't really work that way. Um, you cannot put aside the former ways without feeding on the word. Sin needs to be driven out by another love, by a love of Christ, and by attendant habits and patterns that replace the old modes of thinking and acting. This is, again, why the spiritual disciplines are so important for growing into the maturity that Peter describes. And then Peter finishes up um, his section here with a, a great and appropriate reference to Psalm 34. Again, he's quoting Psalm 34 a lot in 1 Peter uh, when he says, If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Right, Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. Right? The Lord's providence, his goodness to us um, in salvation is abundant. It should be tangible to us. And the word, right, this connection with the word here, the word is how we taste and see that the Lord is good. 
right? Because the word is how God has revealed himself to us. It's how we know of salvation even, right? So the word is how we experience his goodness. Psalm 19 describes the law as sweeter than honey, right? And so this, this word is sweet to us because it reveals the sweetness of our Savior. So we need to develop an appetite for the word, right? Those who hunger for the word are those who have spent time in the word and have tasted that the Lord is good. All right, any questions on that before we move to uh, the last section here? All right, 1 Peter 2, we're going to do 4 through 8, and then we'll, we'll hit nine and, or, uh, 9 and 10 as well. All right, 1 Peter 2, 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. All right, so 1 Peter 2, 4, you know, we've been talking about, Peter's talking about uh, just before this, directly before this, he's been advising us as to the importance of longing for the written word. He's talking about the, the pure spiritual milk of the word. And now, in verse 4, Peter pivots this and turns our attention to the living word, to the theme of all scripture, to Christ himself. He says, as you come to him, as you come to Christ. And this is critical. Um, scripture is not just a compendium of beliefs and advice. Right? It is about the person and work of Christ. That is, that is crucial. Um, Christ says this in John 5, quite scathingly to the Pharisees. John 5, 39 to 40. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Right? Knowing Christ is life, not knowing and obeying the scriptures. The scriptures point us to Christ. And so I, I want to caveat for a second here. I know I've emphasized multiple times the importance of the spiritual disciplines, and they are very, very important. They are critical. Um, but the point is not to have those habits for the habit's sake. And the habits do not save you, right? The point of the spiritual disciplines is because that's how we grow in Christ. That's how we come to know Christ better and to delight in him more fully. The habits do not save us. Christ saves us. So we come to him, and Peter calls him a living stone. So this is kind of an interesting uh, metaphor here, isn't it? Uh, this kind of idea of, of masonry. But what Peter is getting at is this scriptural analogy uh, of building for Christ's, for, for God's work of redemption. Um, and he quotes it in verses 6, uh, 7, and 8, which we'll look at in just a second. Um, in those verses, Christ is referred to as the cornerstone. He's the foundation of the building. Uh, the cornerstone is the most essential stone, right? It sets the level of the building, the angle of the walls. It's, the, it's, the, it's a critical part of the foundation. And so what Peter is saying here when he describes Christ as a living stone He's saying that he is the rock of salvation, that he is stable, that he is solid, that he is everlasting. 
It's interesting to think that um, Christ named Peter the rock. Do you remember that? He renames Peter uh, from Simon to Peter, which Peter means rock. Um, But Peter here turns around and identifies Christ as the true rock and foundation of the church. Now, this living stone um, is rejected by men, uh, but chosen by God. So it's rejected by men. Natural man hates God. Natural man rejects Christ, uh, right? But Christ is chosen by God and precious to him. Um, It reminds me of the the voice, right, at Christ's baptism and the transfiguration, coming down from heaven, this is my beloved son. Um, And so we have these stark differences in the views of Christ. He's hated by the world, but loved by God. Um, Psalm 2, right, the nations rage against the Lord, but the Lord says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Um, And so we have uh, this contrast here, and that's exactly what Peter is saying. So this contrast is true of Christ, and then Peter tells us that this contrast is true of us as well, because he says, you yourselves are like living stones, right? So these things that are true of Christ are also true of us. We too are living stones. Um, We're being built together with Christ, and we too will experience rejection by men, but we are chosen and loved by God. And I like the term living here because Peter is reminding us that we're, we're living, we're alive, we're no longer dead in sin, um, but we are alive to God. We've been regenerated by the power of the Spirit to newness of life. And so Peter uses these three terms here, spiritual house and priesthood and sacrifices, uh, which are all references to worship. Um, so you could look at this and say that Peter is saying that the purpose of our lives is worship, uh, that we are indwelt by the Spirit and made for intimate relationship and fellowship with the triune God. And so this idea of spiritual house, this means the temple. We, uh, Paul says the same thing in Ephesians, uh, that we are being built together corporately into a dwelling place for God, that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Um, but we're not just this passive building, but he calls us a priesthood, right? We're meant to actively minister uh, to God and men, to serve God and men. Um, and then the term sacrifice, we should be wholly dedicated to God and his work. Um, Romans 12, 12.1 talks about this, how we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. And just so you know that Peter isn't making this stuff up whole cloth, he quotes uh, several scripture uh, proof texts uh, for what he says in verses 4 to 5. And he quotes them in, uh, in verses 6 to 8. So he quotes Isaiah 28.16, uh, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Psalm 118, 22, uh, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And then Peter goes further, and he quotes Isaiah 8, 14 as well. He says, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Um, so he lays out this contrast here of the honor for you who believe, and then the stumbling for those who stumble over the stone, for those who reject the stone. So what is the honor of believing that Peter is talking about here. This means, um, it means being vindicated in our belief and trust in Christ on the last day, right? On the last day, we will be shown not to be fools for having trust in Christ, trusted in Christ, but we will shown to have been wise and more than conquerors for placing our hope fully on him, as Peter said earlier. Ultimately, the honor is in being loved and chosen by the eternal king of the universe, And Peter is giving them this eternal perspective because their present reality is very different, right? They're not experiencing honor right now. They're experiencing the opposite. 
right? This is an encouragement to those who are suffering while reading this uh, because they're experiencing reproach and persecution because of their belief in Christ. So they're not receiving honor right now, but Peter is telling them to hold fast because it will in the end. It will one day. And by contrast, we have this idea of stumbling. Uh, So what does Peter mean there? Why does he use that term? Uh, So stumbling is in Isaiah. It's in other prophets as well. Um, It's this idea of being ruined. Um, And so Peter is saying that there are two types of people in the world, right? There's those who uh, trust in Christ, uh, who believe and obey Christ, and there there are those who do not. And those who do receive the great blessings described in chapter 1, and those who do not shall experience this stumbling. They'll experience the wrath and condemnation of God. And so God's assessment of every person who has ever lived or whether or not is whether or not they have um, trusted in the living stone or rejected it. Um, in the parable of the tenants, um, Christ u- actually references some of these, the same scripture and uses the same um, analogy of the stone. Uh, so uh, the parable of the tenants, I'm sure you're familiar with it, right? The, the master of the vineyard lets out his vineyard to the tenants, um, and they refuse to give him the fruit of the vineyard, and they uh, abuse his servants and, and then kill his son. Right? And so this is a, a clear analogy to God and Christ um, and the rejection of Christ by man. Um, and in verse 40, at the very end of the parable, um, Christ finishes saying, When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That's Psalm 118 um, that Peter quoted as well. And then he says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So then Christ is referencing the idea of the stone as well here. Um, And Christ is kind of specifically targeting the Pharisees, right? And they pick up on it, and they're really unhappy about it. Um, But this is true uh, of anyone, that anyone who continues in rebellion against God, um, like the wicked tenants, will be judged by the risen Christ. And Peter uh, wants his readers to know that this fate of being judged by the risen Christ, um, of of being crushed in judgment, so to speak, by the stone, does not await them because they are chosen and precious to God. And so he says in verses 9 to 10, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All right, so it's uh, interesting. These specific terms are actually used in Exodus, the holy nation, the royal priesthood, etc. Um, God calls Israel the exact same things in Exodus 19, 5 to 6. So this is very significant for Peter to use these exact same terms when he's writing to these churches because these churches are largely Gentile believers. Um, so what he's saying is that these Gentile believers are just as much God's people as the people of Israel. And this highlights uh, the fulfillment of all these Old Testament prophecies of God's blessing, of the, blessing to the nations and bringing them in uh, to worship him. 
Isaiah 19, uh, 21 to 25, specifically talks about um, Egypt and Assyria coming and worshiping the Lord together. Um, and so this idea of these enemy nations coming and being joined with God's people, um, Isaiah 66 talks about that as well. And so that's what Peter is saying is happening here. He, you know, this is the fulfillment of some of those prophecies. There is one people of God, God's elect from every tribe, tongue, and nation who trust in Christ by faith. Um, and I think it's interesting, too, that these statements are corporate in nature, right? That we're not, we're saved as individuals, but we're not simply saved as individuals. Uh, we are brought into God's family. There's this corporate nature. We are blood brothers with every saint. Um, and this is one of the reasons why church membership and engagement is so critical. And you'll hear Dennis say over and over again that, you know, in the New Testament, there's no such thing as a believer outside of the church, right? The believers are always you know, in the church, they're engaged with the visible church. And Peter here gives us some uh, additional exhortation, right? He says why we are saved um, to proclaim excellencies. So God has given us, we have this high calling that Peter's mentioned, that we're adopted children, we're called this dwelling place of God, we're this nation of priests, um, and that is all leading up to what are we to do uh, about it. Uh, We have this high calling um, and then we are to proclaim God's excellencies. This is similar to Isaiah 43, 21. It says, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Right? The, the goal, one of the reasons God saved us is for this very purpose, that we might declare his glory, that we might declare his praise. And so we are to worship and to praise him. Uh, we praise God for who he is. And we praise God for what he has done. And that's what Peter is emphasizing here. Uh, Peter says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Um, There's uh, lots of uh, this kind of language in the Psalms. Psalm 34, which Peter has been quoting. Uh, God is all about deliverance, right? God has delivered the psalmist in the day of trouble. And so the psalmist is praising God for that. Uh, Psalm 50, um, Hebrew, Psalm 50, 14 to 15, talks about the sacrifice of thanksgiving for deliverance. Hebrews 13, 15 uses the same term, talks about a sacrifice of praise. And so that kind of ties in with the, the idea of the priesthood that we talked about before, right? That we are this royal priesthood and we offer the sacrifice of praise for our deliverance. And notice also that he says, proclaim, proclaim his excellencies. Um, that is a public act, right? To proclaim is, you know, we are to tell others about the glory of God. Um, this is not something that, that you do, you can't, you don't really proclaim in private. Now, we praise God in private as well, right? And we should do that. Um, but the idea here is that uh, we should be testifying to God's goodness to others, both within the church and without the church. And given the persecution that these churches are experiencing, it'd be very tempting to withdraw and to isolate, right? To to not proclaim God's goodness to those around because that gets you into trouble, right? But Peter is saying that they need to continue doing that anyway, that this is why you have been redeemed. Um, and so we, we have a purpose as the church to proclaim the truth to the world around us, to live counterculturally in it. Um, and Peter will talk, well, next week we'll get more into that countercultural living. All right, so wrapping up really quick with these last, uh, last statements in verse 10. Um, These are really direct references to Hosea, um, Hosea 1 and 2. 
Uh, Hosea has these sign children uh, describing God's judgment that's coming, Jezreel, no mercy and not my people. And then there's this great reversal of the kind of rejection of Israel that's emblematic in the sign children, in their names. Uh, at the end of um, chapter 2 um, he, uh, of Hosea, verses 21 to 23, it says, And I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. Right, so Peter is saying that same thing here. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Peter is again describing the reality of our adoption, uh, the reality of um, our salvation in Christ, the fulfillment of God's intent to be the God of his people and for they to be his God and to dwell with him um, in his land. Peter is saying that Christ has accomplished this reality, that these Old Testament prophecies have, prophecies have been fulfilled in Christ, the redemption is accomplished, um, and these things are true of you. All right, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us because I don't think we have time to take questions, but I'm happy to talk about it afterwards. So if you have anything, feel free to come up. All right, Heavenly Father, we come before you. Uh, we thank you for this great redemption. We thank you that you've called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. Uh, we pray that you would fill our hearts full of joy as we go to worship you. Uh, we pray for your blessing on the preaching of your word this morning, and we pray that you continue to uh, work in us to conform us to the, to the um, image and likeness of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.